So we're in the book of Romans, and last week we talked about getting to know you, getting to know the book of Romans, and I hope you get to know the book of Romans in a big way. Today our subject is our calling, our calling, and we're going to look at Paul very specifically because Paul mirrors our calling in Jesus as well. He had a calling, and you could, if you say, well, I'm glad Paul had this calling, I would want to say that you have a calling too. And as Paul fulfilled his calling, you will be fulfilling your calling. The question is always this, did Paul fulfill his calling? Was he doing what the Lord told him to do? Well, we'll read that in a moment. And I guess more of a personal question that only you can answer is, what is your calling and are you doing what the Lord called you to do? And if you think for a moment, I came to church, that's one step out of the many steps God wants us to do. If you think that your calling is just to come to church, we missed it. We miss Christianity. Christianity is more than that. And it's a person. And it's a real person with a vibrant relationship. And as you'll see, Paul is moving. He's moving as the direction that God calls him to do, to go. And so we are to be moving too. And um, don't think moving from one seat to seat is enough. Moving in the direction that the Lord wants us to do. So let's read together the first 15 verses. Seems like a long time, but it'll go quickly. 15 verses. Can we do that? I think, I think we can. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was born of a, of a descendant of David according to the flesh or the human body, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations or all the non-Jews, the Gentiles, for his name's sake, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed, and throughout the whole world, for God whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son in my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Remember, Paul wanted to visit them. For I long to see you, in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by others' faith, both yours and mine." And I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you, but I was prevented so far, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Gentiles, uh, meaning the Greek culture, educated ones, and to barbarians, that means the uneducated ones, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel while I am in Rome. Interesting way to begin a letter. Remember, most of the New Testament are letters, epistles, personal. When you know that, then it becomes really clear how we're to read this letter. We're to read it in fullness, meaning that we're to read the whole letter, 
Uh, we're going to study the whole letter, but we're to read the whole letter from chapter 1 to chapter 16. Uh, there was no chapter division early when it first was penned down. God did not give it to us in chapters. He gave it to us in a whole letter. So when we read the letter, read the whole letter. We're only reading 15 verses of the letter. And it's quite interesting that the greeting, Paul is dealing with the greeting, only the greeting, takes a long time to get through. And that kind of has to do with why he's writing. He's writing to Christians who are in Rome, mainly a Gentile church. And Paul is writing to these Roman believers, Roman Christians, Gentiles. He's currently in the city of Corinth. He's currently in the city of Corinth, and he desires to go to Rome. He desires to go to Rome, and it's quite interesting that as he's writing, he's writing to Christians, and maybe you find this on your own. When you're talking to other Christians, you know, you could say a lot of things to different people, but when you talk to Christians, doesn't your conversation get longer and longer and longer? If you talk to me, that's the case too, because there's so much to talk about, and it's mainly not us. It's mainly what God's doing. And Paul is referring to this. I want to tell you what God's doing. I want to tell you what God's calling me to do. And I'm going to tell you why I want to visit you. And then you find that with a lot of Christians. I could write a letter uh, to people that are not Christians. It could be very easy. Hi, how are you? Nice to see you again. Have a good day. We'll see you later next week. But to a Christian, it's quite different, isn't it? Did you know what God showed me? And did you know what God told me? And are you doing what God told you to do? And there's this sort of encouragement that begins to, Paul is explaining this to the Romans, and this is why some people say, well, why does Paul take so long to write a hello? Well, it's because God's doing a lot of things, and he wants to share his heart. And I hope you want to share your heart with other Christians, too. That's you get encouragement. Um, you know, don't have a coldness about other believers. Tell them what God's doing. And if he's not doing something, just tell them, look, God's not doing anything. Could you pray for me? That's, a, that's an honest prayer, because sometimes you seem like, I have, I have no idea what God's doing. Can you pray for me? And that's a very, very good thing. But Paul is communicating, and I want you to notice one thing. One through seven, if you write it down on your, on your Bible or your neighbor's Bible, one through seven, he uses the pronouns we. We doing this, we doing that, we want you to know. From eight to 15, part of our study is I. And I don't know if you've ever taken an English class, a literature writing class. Uh, I is the pronoun that you write about you, and your feelings, and your emotions, and your subjective feelings, right? Your, I feel strongly about this. I want to encourage you. I want to tell you this. Something that you derive from yourself as something that is more passionate. We has to do with more the objective part. We're going to do this. We're going to do that, right? He can't speak for other people. So normally when we speak of we, it's pretty much objective. This is what we're doing, et cetera, et cetera. When you speak of I, it's very, very personal. Because you share things that nobody else, nobody else feels but you. And so you notice that change when you're reading, and there's a reason for it. He's writing to Christians in the Roman Empire. And I want to go to verse 1 very quickly. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. We, we talked a little bit about Paul last week, very briefly, but I think we got the point, is that Paul was very different than us. I told you, Paul was not a church member of any church. He never attended any Protestant church. He never attended a Catholic church. He never attended any of those things. He was a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish Pharisee, a man who, in his early days, would have nothing to do with Gentiles. 
This is part of the miracle. Nothing to do with Gentiles. In fact, he was a Jewish zealot. So zealot, he actually, his zeal drove him to persecute people that believe that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. But he was a Roman citizen. And part of understanding the letter of Romans is this. Think of Paul's perspective. He doesn't think like you. <laughs> That's an understatement. Right? He doesn't think like me. He is writing as a Jewish believer in the Messiah Jesus, whom you know. And he's writing from a perspective that I'm also a Roman citizen. And I'm also called to be an apostle. In his early days, he was a passionate, passionate monotheistic believer, meaning there was one God. To him, it was the Shema, the Deuteronomy chapter 6, right? It was the Shema. There's only one God. And when you hear statements that he says that Jesus is God, there's quite a transformation because he never would have said that Jesus, a man, can become or can be God and man at the same time. And he argues, and when you're reading his, he sometimes argues like a, a Greek philosopher. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? That there's some, not just Old Testament Jewish understanding of it, but from a perspective of Gentiles, he uses logic, he uses reason, he uses things that learned from the Greek philosophers, especially when dealing with unbelievers. And, and we read that in the book of Acts when he goes to Athens and he argues with the philosophers of his day. Now, how does he do that? Well, he was quite interesting, isn't it? But he first persecuted the Christians, radical persecutor. And yet he is the writer of most of the New Testament. So we have, and when you, re, when you, when you study this more, we have a gap. How can I relate to a Jewish guy from the first century? Really, that's the problem with, you know, in reading Romans, is how do you relate to somebody that you have very little common in common with? Well, the nice thing about it is God gave us his word in epistles, letters. You can see his heart, and you can overcome any gaps. As you study the Bible, you'll overcome any gaps. If you have a hard time understanding the Bible, uh, as you read and pray and seek the heart of the Lord in that matter, things become more clear. And as we study this, I hope that it becomes more clear. But in the first verse, there are three miracles. I don't know if you can spot them. Three miracles. First miracle, this Jewish guy who was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, his name was Shaul of Tarsus. He was from Tarsus. His name was Shaul, from the, derived from the first king of Israel. He was a Benjamite, just like the king of Israel, Saul. What is his name in the first verse? The first word, Paul. Not Saul, Paul. What would get a Jewish guy named Saul, Shaul, after name after the first king, to now use a Gentile name? A radical transformation. That this Jewish man had now become an apostle sent out to take on a Jewish faith and take it to the world. Now he uses his Gentile name, Paul. It means little. He's little now. He's not Shaul of Tarsus, the great Pharisee of Pharisees. He is little Paul. What do you think he picked up that name for? What do you think he, he used it quite a bit? In fact, all his letters are Paul. 
It means little. It means he didn't consider himself very, very important anymore. It was not about him anymore. You know, it's like you writing your name. I'm not going to use my name. You love your name, right? You love your name. Like, I'm going to call myself insignificant. Insignificant is writing you a letter. Hello, insignificant. How are you today? Well, I know my name is, you know, whatever, Marco or Bill or whatever. That's my name. Well, in the light of Jesus, we're not that important anymore. It's insignificant what my name is. It doesn't matter anymore. It only matters what his name is. And if you know his name, if you know his son's name, Jesus. Paul is writing, first miracle. He is a Jew. And now he uses his name, Paul. Secondly, he is a an apostle, I'm sorry, a bond servant. See the word there, bond servant? It's an amazing thing that a wealthy man like Paul used to be, a Pharisee, was very endowed with very honorable status, a wealthy man. The Pharisees were very wealthy. Just read the Gospels. They even made fun of Jesus because their God was money, and they really wanted to keep their money in control of the, of the temple. And they made fun of Jesus because Jesus was always correcting them about their greed and about their avarice and about their uh, desire for money. In fact, Paul tells us in this letter that there was one commandment that when he looked at it and saw it, he died. Maybe physically died. He didn't die physically. He was still alive. But he died in a sense of conviction. He was done. And what was that commandment? Does anyone know? The ninth command, the tenth commandment, covetousness. He says, I found all manner of coveting in my own heart. And boy, if Paul had it, what about me, right? Coveting in my heart, you want things that other people have. You want it for yourself and you desire it. If you lust after it, you might as well stole it, the Bible says. It's coveting. And Paul found coveting in his heart. And he says, I died that day. When I stood up against the law of God, I was done because I had no, way, no recourse. I was guilty. And now he says, I am a bondservant. And there were different kinds of bondservant uh, at the time of, of Paul. This is a bondservant. Could have been somebody that worked for somebody as a servant. But there was also slaves. And this is what Paul is alluding to. Slave. He was a slave to Jesus. He is now a bondservant of Christ Jesus. In fact, later on, if you say, well, Paul, that's, that's his calling. He's a slave. Paul later on will say in chapter 6, we get to that point in about a couple months from now, hopefully. He says, we're all slaves. By the way, we're all slaves. It just depends who your master is. But even if people that, oh, I don't believe in God, they're slaves already. They're slaves to their life. Paul says the worst master you can have is self. It is the worst master you can have is self. You're ruled by self. You're in a tyranny. You're in a tyranny, and you're the captive. And you say, well, I never heard that before. What are you talking about? Paul says, look, when you sin, and you can't stop sinning, you are literally a slave of sin. And when you want to sin, you are the taskmaster of yourself. It's the flesh. It's the old nature that wants to rule. And he got fact goes on to say, uh, even John says it, that if you do that, there was actually a master above that, which you don't want to admit, and that's the enemy. That's the devil. We've become servants of Satan when we are servants of sin. And that's taken another level. But Paul says we're all slaves. You're either self, uh, slave to yourself, slave to sin, slave to your own desires, slave to your own cravings and wants, or you can be a servant of Jesus. 
And he's a much better servant, by the way. I'm a much better master, by the way. And, but nonetheless, a servant. Nonetheless, we are doing his will. It just depends who you want to serve. It just depends who you want to be your Lord. And by the way, you can't have them both. You can be a slave to self, and you can be a slave to Jesus. You can't. It cannot work together. And if that's a struggle in your life, it's because you haven't given up one of them. <laughs> Hopefully you don't give up Jesus. But you cannot have both self and Jesus as your master. It's an impossibility. It's literally like saying you could be here and you could be there at the same time. You can't. And you'll be fighting and arguing with yourself, and there'll be this struggle about who rules. Is it Jesus, his will, or is it me, my will? That's the second miracle, that a man like Paul would say, I've been self-driven all my life. I'm a self-made man. Remember we read last week, Philippians 3, his pedigree, a Jew, Pharisee of the Pharisees from the Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was the top dog in the Hebrew thinking, in the, in the pharisaical thinking. According to the law, faultless. You couldn't find fault in the external keeping of the law. Nobody was better than Paul. He was, he was a professional do-gooder. He was a professional do-gooder. And yet, he says, now I'm a slave of Jesus. It's not what I want, it's what he wants. And it's a very, very important thing. Third miracle, if you see it. Called to be an apostle, set aside for the gospel of God. I am a servant of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, that is the name of Jesus, but it's putting his divinity first, Christ, and then his humanity right after. Christ Jesus, it is God in human form, the Messiah, the divine figure of God, the divine person of God in human form coming. Paul says, I always looked for Messiah. Since he was a young kid, he was raised up to be a person who expected the Messiah to come but never in a million years did he ever think it was Jesus. In fact, he was a zealot to prove that he wasn't Jesus, that he wasn't the Messiah when he persecuted the church. Remember that? He persecuted the church because they believed that Jesus was Messiah. He didn't. But now he says, Christ Jesus, that Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, he is our Messiah. He's the one that Isaiah talked about for all those years. We found him. Remember the joy that Daniel had when he came to see and Andrew had when he came to the, the apostles? He said, we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah. Paul must have had the same reaction. We found our beloved Messiah. All my life, I look for Messiah to come, and it's Jesus. And that's something he never would have admitted until now. Question for you. How do you see yourself in this verse? Do you see yourself as a, a servant? Do you see yourself as somebody who is taken captive to serve Christ as a servant of Jesus, right? He is called to be an apostle as well. He is called to be an apostle. And that word there means to send out or to send somebody out. Apostolos. In Greek, it just means sent out. We sent somebody or, or to send. And this is what the disciples were. The disciples were first called by Jesus, but then sent out by Jesus many times, especially the last one in the book of Acts. Sent out. Here's Paul, called to be an apostle. And he is set apart. Did you see that part there? Set apart for the gospel. That gospel means good news. And it's a good news if it means something. Right? If it means something. It's good news because there's also bad news. 
See, the gospel can be good news unless there's some bad news. What's, what's, what's so good about it? Oh, it's because there's bad news. What is the bad news? And we'll get to that next week. But specifically, the bad news is all have sinned. All have sinned. And God is angry at sin. And God has wrath towards sin. And God will not let the sinner go unpunished. If the soul of the sins, he must die. And Paul's going to repeat that from the Old Testament. The wages of sin is death. There is bad news. Sinners in the hands of a wrathful, angry God. Oh, pastor, you're scaring everybody. Don't say that. No one's going to watch or care about it anymore. Well, that's the reality that they had to face. Now the good news is God doesn't have to be angry with you. God will forego his wrath and anger towards sin because his son took the wrath and took the anger and took the punishment for you and for me. And if you're in Christ Jesus, if you receive them as Lord, Savior, King, Master, if you're his doulos, if you're his servant, then you've passed from judgment to life. There is no judgment to those who are in Christ Jesus. And we are not appointed to wrath anymore, Paul will go on to say to another church. And therefore, the good news is God's not angry with you anymore. You're actually his son. You're actually his child. You're actually his heir to the kingdom. And what a wonderful news that is. Good news. Not good advice. Good news. Good news because there's a bad news. And the bad news is that the ancient world that Paul lived in needed to hear this good news. That God was going to judge sin. And he was commanding people to repent before the judgment would come. And he went all over the world telling people this good news. And yet that's what his calling was. He was sent out to do that. But the, the calling of God or the, or the gospel of God has to go back to a little bit earlier than Paul. In fact, verse 2 tells us he promised this. God did it. God promised this through the prophets. And there's an interesting thing, right? In the Holy Scriptures, in the Bible, when you read about the prophets, and I do want to say this, not just the prophets that have book named after them, but also the prophets that doesn't have a book named after them that are written in the Holy Scriptures. What prophets do you want to, um, comes to your mind that didn't write a book, but they're very much in the Bible? Think of like men like Elijah and Elisha, right? Uh, and men like Nathan, prophets of God who came at the right moment, at the right time, stood up and said, this is wrong and God's going to judge sin. But if you repent and believe, God will have mercy. And these were the prophets who foretold the gospel. Isn't it interesting that you go back to the Old Testament and read the prophets and you'll find good news. The gospel, it is fully flourished in the New Testament, but it's all over the Old Testament. In fact, the word good news appears in the book of Isaiah. It appears in Samuel. It appears in Abraham to Abraham. The good news. What's the good news? There's a bad news. God is angry at sin. But the good news, he's willing to forgive. A holy God willing to forgive people, not based on their performance, based on faith. And Paul's going to get to that next week. The righteous, if you're righteous, you're to live by faith and you're to remain in that faith by being faithful to the calling that you have. But let's continue. Verse 3. Concerning his son. Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David, According to the flesh. Oh, this goes back to the prophets again. Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament was one of the most satisfying, most amazing things you could ever do as a Christian. It'll swell up your soul with joy and peace and 
and, and just the revelation of God, of Jesus in the Old Testament. And you find him. And we did a study yesterday on the book of Acts, chapter 7, out in Yorba Linda. And the beautiful thing about it, we went through Acts 7. And, and Stephen, given his defense of the truth of Jesus, and he goes all through the Old Testament. And every one of those characters that he mentions is Jesus. There were pictures of Jesus. There were shadows of Jesus all through the Old Testament. And they're vibrant, by the way. When you find them, it's like gold. It's treasure. It's that Jesus has been there all along. You know, you realize somebody's been walking with you. You don't even realize who he was. And then you realize it's been Jesus, like the road to Emmaus. Remember the story of road to Emmaus? They had no idea that this stranger that walked up to them and walked with them was Jesus. Their eyes were prevented until it was the right time. And it was the Lord. And all through the Old Testament, you have shadows of Jesus. He was a descendant of David. So when you read David... The life of David, guess what? You are literally seeing a king in Jerusalem subduing their enemies, the enemies of Israel, being subdued by David, establishing the kingdom. Well, what is Jesus doing? He is subduing all the enemies of God will one day be defeated, including death, hell, Satan, all will be defeated, and he will establish the kingdom, and it will be from Jerusalem. And David, it's a prototype of that. He did it earlier. Because he's pointing to Jesus. And by the way, a slave needs an owner. And that is, in verse 4, who has declared the Son of God with power by raising Jesus from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus our Lord. Beautiful Greek word, kurios. It just means Lord, a master. Somebody you're under. Remember he was a doulos, he was a servant? Well, now he has a Lord. And that Lord is Jesus, and it's no longer me, and it's no longer I, it is Christ Jesus. And so Christianity, it's about a person, and that's what uh, Paul is addressing here. Christianity is not a philosophy, it's not being a do-gooder, it is a person. It is a person that you have a relationship with. It is a person that you live with, and love, and grow together, Right? And it's very similar, but interesting, when you read this, it's very similar to the book of Hebrews. If you look at the book of Hebrews, it's a wonderful book to read, especially when you go on vacation, right? Romans last week, Hebrews this week. Go on vacation, read those two books, you'll be satisfied in your soul. Hebrews begins like this, God in former times and in different ways and in different times spoke through the prophets, but now in the latter days, in the last of these days, He's spoken to us by his son, Jesus. Well, just like Romans, he said, God spoke the gospel in the past through the prophets. Now God's speaking to us concerning his son. And he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And by the way, he is our Lord. He's my Lord, but he's your Lord too. We're in it together as Christians, right? Our Lord. And that's what Paul is referring to here. His divine, the divine person of God in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. Two Two natures in one. It's quite amazing. But Paul is addressing something here. Verse 4, in dealing with the gospel, he doesn't talk about the death of Jesus. What does he talk about in verse 4? The resurrection of Jesus. See, the gospel is, the capstone of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. We can talk about the death of Jesus, and it's important. We can talk about the cross. We can talk about the, the shedding of blood that forgives sins. Absolutely. But the same Paul said, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you're still in your sins. Well, wait a minute, Paul. Jesus did die for my sins, yeah, but if he didn't raise, you're still in them. 
Isn't that amazing? The resurrection of Jesus is the capstone to what we believe. Without it, it would be nothing. All that Jesus said and all that Jesus did mattered absolutely zero. And I don't mean that in an irreverent way. If he didn't rise from the dead, it would mean nothing. And so many times, and this is unfortunately, we take the gospel of Jesus and we make it all about his death. And we never tell people that he rose from the dead. And then you read the book of Acts and guess what they were telling people? Jesus rose from the dead. They did speak of his death, of course, but they spoke of his resurrection far more because it was the point. What was the point of Jesus coming? Just to die? Well, a lot of people died. Just to be a martyr? A lot of people were martyrs. But if he rose from the dead, my friend, he is God. He is absolutely, without a doubt, the power of God. But who raised him from the dead? It says it was his son, uh, the son of God, raised from the dead, whom God raised from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. God raised his son from the dead according to the spirit of holiness. He was declared the son of God. What that means is, if you had any questions about Jesus, if you looked at Jesus when he was walking on the earth, he said, this guy has power. This brother has juice. This guy's got a lot of things that he does. You know? But if he didn't rise from the dead, it'd be just another, another magician, another do-gooder, another people that was trying to get people for himself. But when he rose from the dead, there was no doubt that he was the one. He was the one. In fact, if you read the book of John, there are seven miracles in the book of John. The last one is the capstone. Does anyone know the last miracle of the seven that Jesus did in the book of John? Has to do with raising somebody from the dead, by the way. Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus. And they said, oh man, the Pharisees said. There were two, two reactions. The Pharisees, well, I'll give you the one reaction that was good. You are the resurrection and the life. You absolutely are. You are the one. And they, they were worshiping Jesus. This was amazing. They could not imagine that he had raised his friend. Remember, he had wept, and he was uh, moved with compassion because he was his friend. And he raised him from the dead. He said, Father, let this be known that you have sent me. This is the sign that, you, that people would know that I'm the one that you have sent. And then here's the Pharisees. You know what the Pharisees said? Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Do you see that this was a major miracle? This was no joke. This was it. From that point on, Caiaphas and the group said, it is expedient for one man to die for the sake of this nation. We don't want the Romans to come in here and take our land. If he's really raising people from the dead, what's going to happen? Rome's going to come in and level us. By the way, they did. But Jesus was the one. He saved people because he's the resurrection and the life. And if he is, my friend, he's God. And there was two things that showed that Jesus was truly Messiah. His birth and his resurrection. His birth, a virgin birth. A womb. A womb that has never had any other baby in there. She's never been with another man. There was no one else. She was a virgin conceiving through the Holy Spirit. And then the tomb, an empty tomb, which, by the way, no man had laid in it either. No man had gone into that tomb, and now it's empty. The womb and the tomb, I guess you can make two, two cases of that, prove without a shadow of a doubt that this man is special. This man is special, and he's alive today. He's Jesus the Messiah. And it says that the power came from the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, through whom we have received 
grace and apostleship. Grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. Now, Paul's going to get into some interesting thing here. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, just the next book over to the right. I know Romans a little bit long, 16, verse, uh, 16 chapters, but 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1, Paul reminds us again of his apostleship. By the way, he always told people about his apostleship because people didn't like Paul and didn't think he was an apostle. And people would try to take him down, even to this day. There are churches that do not agree with Paul, do not like Paul, and they don't read Paul's letters, and many different reasons and many different circumstances. I would say this, if you don't believe the gospel of Paul, you don't believe the gospel at all. I don't know if that rhymes, but if you don't believe the gospel of Paul, you don't believe the gospel at all. I don't care if it has a cross on the roof or anything like that. If you don't believe what Paul wrote is the gospel because you question his apostleship, then, my friend, you don't believe the gospel at all because the gospel of God is the gospel of Paul and what he preached. Look what it says in 1 Corinthians 1.1. Very easy. Paul called to be an apostle or as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. By the will of God. Put that together with what he's been telling the Romans is this. God called him. It was not Paul's idea to be an apostle. He was not signing up for this job. He was the one who God gave that calling in his life. Turn to Hebrews 5.4. Just keep going to the right a little bit. Uh, Hebrews 5.4. So from Corinthians, you go to the right and you find Galatians and Ephesians and Thessalonians. And if you get to Thessalonians, you're almost there. You get to Timothy and then you get to Hebrews and you go to chapter 5. And you go to chapter 5. Speaking of the will of God, speaking of the calling of a high priest, Hebrews 5.4. So also, I'm sorry, and no one takes honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But God said of him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. No one, call, no one takes on a call on their own. If you did, that's wrong. No one's supposed to take it, but there's to receive it, just like Aaron did. In fact, Jesus didn't go around parading it, the book of Hebrews says. He didn't go around glorifying himself. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of God. He actually allowed the Holy Spirit to work in his life to demonstrate who he was to people. He didn't take it himself. He did it because God called him to that office. He was the high priest, and he was the one that didn't take it up for himself. He didn't go around parading it. He says, God called me to do this. Even Jesus, who was legitimately the son of God, did not take it on himself. He allowed God to work in his life. Isn't that the humility of Jesus? I mean, when you know how to do something, and you belong there, and it's you, that and you know it, to lay it down and allow God to just give it to you. That takes tremendous humility and tremendous restraint and trust and faith that God is going to fulfill his purpose in your life. Well, take a look at this. Who is doing this? It's Paul saying, I am an apostle by the will of God. I didn't sign up for it. In fact, that was everything but doing this. I was destroying it. And God called me to do this. God called me to do this. And what's amazing thing here is says obedience. 
Obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. This is amazing. God has called us to do something. Now, I'll take the time very quickly as we finish, or getting close to finish. You know what that means. Is this, has God called you to do something? All right. The amazing, the amazing thing to find is what that is. It's what that is. God has called you to do something. Yes, we have a calling. We have gifting that underpin that calling. Find that your calling, you know what your gifts, what you're gifted in. That calling has to do with one thing. As a Christian, it's the gospel. You could be, um, you could be an engineer. You could be a manager. You could be a teacher. You could be a lot of things. But the calling of God in your life is to do one thing, a servant. That's a servant. Primarily, is to be a servant. You can be a lot of things. You could be an engineer, a teacher, stuff like that. But that's not your ultimate calling. Your ultimate calling is a servant. And as God has given you this calling, right, to serve, what has he told you to do with that calling? Now, some people, Mayor, God calls to be an evangelist or a teacher, or a deacon, or an elder, or whatever it may be. Are you you following what God told you to do? And by the way, this is going to be, this is a real test. If God called you to do something, that means you can't do something else. That's about the extent of my theological training, right? (laughs) If you're doing something, you can't do something else. Meaning this, if God has called you to do something, then all other callings and all other things and desires that you have must be laid aside, must be laid aside for that calling that you have. Now, it is primarily that calling. I'm not telling you tomorrow to quit your job unless God told you to do that. But what I'm saying is it's your energy and effort and time primarily being directed to that calling in your life. And if you're doing that, then you can't be doing all this either. I'll give you one example. Uh, In ministry, some people are called to be an evangelist, and they're very good. The problem comes in is when they're called, when they want to do something else besides being an evangelist. They want to be a pastor, and they want to be a teacher, and they're not called to be a teacher or a pastor. And they are not only foregoing what they should be doing, evangelism and sharing the gospel and bringing people to faith, but because they have not been called to teach and pastor, they're going to flounder as well. And this is the problem with a lot of times in ministry. We have a calling, and then we want to do everything. feel like we could do all things. And God says, I called you for something. Do it. And if you're doing that, you can't be doing anything else, because primarily that's your calling. And there's an amazing thing. There's many, many pastors and teachers who want to be evangelists. It works the other way around, too. And they flounder at the fact that they're not called to be an evangelist, but then they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing pastoring and teaching the flock, and they fail at both. And so it's very, very important as Christians that we find out what is the calling of God. And once you find it, then lay aside all things for that calling that you have in his life. Oh, he's called me to be this. It's servant, and there's a gifting that comes with that serving. Now, what is it? I would say this, uh, the, the prophetic gifts and things like that are very important. In fact, God tells us to have you know, seek for the gift of prophecy, but also people that are called into to be a spokesperson for God, like a prophet, right? Somebody who speaks for God. I'm not talking about, you know, 
first thing that comes to our mind is a guy in a robe, right, preaching on a corner. You think of a prophet. That's not what a prophet is in the Bible in the New Testament. There were offices of prophets in the Old Testament for sure, and guys like Elijah and things like that. But in the New Testament, it's somebody that knows the heart of God, knows the heart of God, and is in tune with God and goes and tells people the message that God wants them to receive. Now, think about this. A prophet spends a lot of time doing what? That's right. That means that person must be primarily... Now, we all need to pray. The prophets pray. People automatically swing to one way or the other. But a prophet is to pray constantly, consistently, seeking the will of God. Does that man have a lot of time to study and to teach? Or that person? No, not a lot. He can but his main calling is to seek the heart of God in prayer. That means that a lot of ministries that he would love to do cannot be done because he's been called to something very, very specific. Do you understand the point? All right. A pastor, a teacher, cannot go around the world and evangelizing everybody that he sees because what's his calling? Pastor, teacher, he has to have a flock and he has to have a ministry. But if he goes around trying to evangelize and teach the whole world, then he's not doing what he's called to do. And that's one of the things that it's important about a calling, that if you have a calling, make sure you know what that is. And secondly, you lay aside all the other things that may distract that calling from your life. And that's a very important thing because Paul said, I know my calling. His calling is to preach the gospel apostleship, to be sent about the obedience of faith. I need to be obedient to this. God has called us to be obedient. Now, I want to balance it out with the fact that we all have a calling that's specific, but we also have a calling that is in general, meaning that we all need to evangelize, share the gospel, give tracts, share your faith. We're all called to do that. But an evangelist has a very specific mission and calling. You know what I'm saying? We're all called to be compassionate. We're all called to be merciful. We're all called to do those things. But there are specific callings in your life. And Paul knew what that was. As I've been set apart for the gospel. I am an apostle. I'm sent. I am here to preach. And I am here to go But because I have to teach obedience. Did you see that part right there in verse 5? Obedience to the faith. Christianity is primarily... A faith that obeys, not just a faith that believes. We have made belief the golden calf of everything, right? As long as you believe, that's it. That's the golden ticket. The Bible says as long as you obey. Quite interesting, isn't it? Obedience and faith. It begins in faith. Of course it is faith because you have to trust. But does that trust lead to obedience? Paul could have said, I went around and telling people to believe. There's no obedience of faith. The faith that you know, what you know, obey it. What you know, obey it. So I guess the question begs the question, what do you know? And if what you know, do you obey it? And that's what Paul went around. He didn't go around and say, hey, follow the Ten Commandments, do this. No, it's faith. He taught faith. From faith to faith, he says, Begins with faith, ends with faith. But during those bookends, right, begins with faith, ends with faith, do you obey the faith? Do you obey the faith? It's quite interesting, isn't it? When we start reading the Bible, it makes a lot of sense. 
that it's obedience of faith among who? The Gentiles. The fascinating thing is, we're going to get to that later, is Paul is going to be addressing Gentiles about the relationship with Jewish people, especially in the, in the Church of Rome, which is going to get to really heavy 9 and 11. And I pray that everybody's here that day for nine, chapters 9 through 11, those days, maybe a couple of Sundays. But it's going to be very interesting because it's going to be the crescendo. If you miss 9 and 11, you, it's like missing the middle part of the movie. How, what happened? <laughs> well, from the first eight chapters, he's talking to Gentiles about what they are to believe, what they're to know, what they're to do. And it's fascinating to me that these were Christians. And the question is, why is Paul telling Christians the gospel if they already know it? Because many people have said, well, Paul is just writing the gospel to people because he, you know, he's just writing it down. Well, if they already knew it, why does he need to go over it again? And why does he mention repentance much in this book, right? Uh, there's things that are not repeated as much as Paul repeats it in other letters. It's because they're Christians and he's establishing the reality that all of us have sinned, all of us need Jesus, Jew and Gentile together, are going to be in the kingdom of God. But we need to address this issue that we need to be a light to the Gentiles. Jewish people were to be a light to the Gentiles. And then Gentiles are not to be arrogant toward the Jewish people. But we can get to that in 9 through 11. A light to the Gentiles. Paul says, I preach to the Gentiles this very, very thing. Now let's continue. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Christ Jesus. You have been called by the Lord. Um, one more verse I want to give you. Paul's calling is quite interesting. Go to 1 Corinthians 4, again, 1 Corinthians, but this time chapter 4, and look at verse 9, because I just want you to see the, the balance of Paul's calling. You think, man, what a wonderful thing. To be an apostle, to be sent out to see the risen Jesus, this is amazing. I never had that calling. Not quite that calling, but with calling comes responsibilities. Look at verse 9 of chapter 4. For I think God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become in a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this recent hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed and roughly treated, and we're homeless. We toil, working with our hands, and we are reviled. We bl when we bless, we are persecuted. We endure. We are slandered. We try to conciliate. We have become a scum of the world. That Greek word is a very funny word. That scum word is literally scum, but it's like... How do I put it? You know that ring around your bathtub? That's what it is. That helps? Just give you a graphic picture. Or around the toilet bowl, or inside the toilet bowl, right? That's what the word it, it was. The, it was a word in Greek that meant just disgusting things. Paul says, we have become that of the earth, uh, of the world, the scum of the world, the dregs, that's another word that's interesting. Look it up. <laughs> it just means another disgusting thing. Even until now. For I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children, for you were to be countless tutors in Christ. Yet you would not have many fathers, for in Christ Jesus I've become your father through the gospel. 
I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. We're to imitate Paul. The Corinthians were to imitate Paul in his calling. Well, what that wasn't very nice was it the calling. Didn't seem like he was staying at the Hilton when he traveled. Didn't seem he was welcome in many high place establishment or many churches. He was the scum of the earth. He was a dreg of this world. He was not very welcomed. People didn't like Paul, uh, even in churches. Who called him? Yeah. It was not Paul's decision. Who signs up for that job? Who would want to sign up for the, being the scum of the earth and the dreg of this world? Certainly not me or you. But when you begin to serve the Lord, you realize something. The calling is his. He gives it to you. And it comes with responsibilities. I am not saying you're going to be exactly like Paul, but there are many believers who live this way. But one thing for sure, that calling comes with a responsibility. And are we able to take that on, knowing that that, would, that was what it would, could mean in the world, that as Christ lives in this world, so we will be the same. And the way he was treated and liked or not liked, it would be like us. And that, my friend, drives thousands of Christians away. Don't say that. That's negative. I don't receive it in the name of Jesus. Don't say that thing. You know. But this is the Bible. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says the calling of Paul had some consequences to his life. It wasn't all fun and dandy at the Hilton, at the pool, you know, re, re, you know recreation and things like that. It was a calling that meant that even if it took him to that extent, he would be that for the Corinthians. He would be the scum of the earth for them because he wanted them to walk with Jesus. He wanted them to be imitators of Jesus because he was imitating Christ. Jesus had no, no place to lay his head. Was Jesus homeless? Apparently, when he was in ministry, he didn't have a place to lay right his head. He probably had a home in Nazareth with his mother. But after he went in ministry, he lived according to the will of God. Whatever God gave him, he lived. Quite interesting, isn't it? The calling of every individual to be an apostle, to be an evangelist, to be a prophet, to be a teacher, to be a pastor has wonderful calling. Jesus called you. But are you willing to take it on and do it wholeheartedly for him, even if it meant that people would consider you the scum of the earth? I think people in America, Christians in America, don't want that. I think we're so sophisticated, we think that's an insult. And yet Paul says, bring it. Bring it on. I embrace all of Jesus and all that he comes with. All the wonderful things that Jesus brings and all the trials that Jesus brings. Haven't you noticed that when you embrace Jesus, things become a little more interesting in your life? Is that a way of saying it? Interesting? Did things get difficult? Yeah. I'm sure you were invited to every party and everybody loved you. And they would just roll out the red carpet every time you came in. Jesus comes with some consequences, doesn't he? And he told people that, didn't he? He says, you count the cost. You want to follow me, you count the cost. They'll treat you like I was treated. But there's an eternal weight of glory that makes everything that you go through unbelievably small. And with that song, the things of earth go strangely dim in this light of his glory and grace. That's true. That's true. These things become like a badge of honor. I suffer like our Lord. And how many of us can say that? 
I suffer like our Lord. I don't think many Christians in America can say that. I suffer like our Lord. I know many Christians in China can say that. I know many Christians in Africa can say that. Hmm. Things to ponder and consider. But let's keep reading. Verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is an amazing, another amazing thing. The relationship that, God, that Paul had with his people is that he called them saints. God calls them saints. And God called them beloved. Paul is telling them, you're my beloved. God has called you. You're called saints. The word saint means to be set apart. That's really all it means. And he's been talking about being set apart from, from verse 1. He was set apart. He wants us to be set apart. He wants the Roman Christians to be set apart. Tibetists to be set apart for his use. And to be set apart for his calling. Again, it's one of those things that he's building on. He's set apart. He wants you to be set apart for the calling of God. And he wants you to know that God has called you his set apart. His loved one. His beloved one. The one he separated you. He separated you for a specific calling. And he wants you to live that way. Now, the, the idea of saint, the Catholic Church has a, uh, a monopoly on it. They got everybody in a, as a saint. But the Bible says all Christians are saints. Living ones. You don't have to be dead to be a saint. You can be a living saint. And St. Paul was St. Paul, but you were also St. Bill and, you know, and, and St. You know, Frank, St. You know, Roy. And it, it, it. Everyone that believes in Jesus is a saint. But the calling is a saint, but also the living has to be a saint. You have to live set apart. Not just the calling, but the living, the obedience. Verse 8, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world, whom God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness how incessantly I make mention of you always in my prayers, making requests that perhaps now at last by the will of God, keeps going by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. He prayed for them. Paul's prayer is fantastic. His prayer is, I want to come to you. I want to come to you. And it's quite interesting because he thanks God for them. And he has a heart for them. He wants to, he wants to visit them. In verse 11, we're told why. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. So two things. Number one is he wants to impart a spiritual gift to them. What is he talking about, the spiritual gift? Well, it's the idea, of course, of all that the Spirit has to do in our lives. They are the gifts of the Spirit. Quite, quite interesting, right? That's exactly what Paul is saying. The gift is he wants to help them build in the spiritual gift that God has called them to have. Now, what is it? It's for you to search and find your spiritual gift. Because if you find your calling, you find your gift. By the way, it could also, it's also the idea that the Spirit also gives the fruit of the Spirit. There's the fruit of the Spirit as well. Paul was relating to them that I'm going to come to you and impart a spiritual gift because I want to see you well established. And in any church, there's the spiritual gifts, there's the fruit of the Spirit, and there's also the work and the manifestation of the Spirit in people's lives. And before you think of manifestation, you think of some hyper-Pentecostal charismatic thing, think of this. One manifestation of the Spirit is love. And all of us have 
could have that. If you let go of self and love someone today, another manifestation of the Spirit is compassion. How about that one? Mercy. When we see Christians behaving like that toward one another, you know what it's doing? It's the gift and calling and work of the Spirit in that person's life, working through them and establishing a good fellowship, a fellowship that has the Holy Spirit, gifts, uh, fruit, and the manifestation of the Spirit in the individual's lives. It's a church that it's thriving, that it's growing. No matter the size, no matter the size, could be small, could be huge, but they're growing from within. It's the spiritual gift. And Paul says, I want to do that to you, but you're going to give me something too. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you. Uh, Oh, sorry, verse 12. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while each of us, by others' faith, both yours and mine. You know what Paul needed? That. Anyone here need that? Amen. Paul needed that. If Paul needed that, I need that. How are you going to get it? He says, by one another's faith. He wanted the Romans to encourage him. He wanted to give them an opportunity to maybe pray for them and allow the Holy Spirit as an apostle to work in their lives and in spiritual gifts in their own church and the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. He says, I can do that. I want to help you with that. But I need some help too. I need some help and encouragement. What was Paul's discouragement? That's the question, right? It may be the reason for the letter. He was discouraged. and says, I want you to encourage me. It may be too that you need that. And you know, you're going to find the encouragement with the person next to you or in front of you or behind you. If you're discouraged, find that in them. He says, I want to encourage you today. And it's not, it's not a fake thing. It's not just happy thoughts like, you know, whistle in the dark type thing. It's a real encouragement from the Holy Spirit. Verse four, uh, 13 now. I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often wanted to come to you. And I wanted to, I planned it and I'd been prevented in order that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel when I am in Rome. He wanted to do this as well, not only to impart a spiritual gift, but he also wanted to preach. I want some fruit among you. I want to see people come to faith. I want a harvest. I want to see a harvest. And guess what? I am under obligation. The word obligation there, there, it's an interesting word. It's the word for debt. The word for debt. Paul is a debtor. Paul is a debtor. And it says in here that he is a debtor to Greek and barbarian. The word obligation there has to do with duty, bound, like if you're paying a debt. Now think of your debts. I hope you don't have much. But if you have a debt, you're obligated to pay, unless you want to go to bankruptcy or something like that, right? You're obligated to pay. But Paul is saying here, I have a debt. What is that debt? I owe the gospel to people, both the educated Greeks and the uneducated barbarians. That's what he said, the Gentiles, basically. They're both Gentiles. But one is educated, high-class Roman-type citizen, and the other ones are the, the low-class, the ones that can't even babble the word. That's what the word barbarian came from. They're barber, they're barbarian, they babble. They don't even know how to speak. To those educated ones and uneducated ones, it says, I have a debt, and I want to pay that debt. How do I pay my debt? By preaching, by sharing the gospel. 
I am eager to pay my debt. I live like I owe the gospel to someone. I am under obligation to give the gospel to people. We live in a world that everybody's entitled to everything, right? Free health care, free education, free this, free that, pay my loan out, whatever. And they demand it. Here, give me that, right? It's an entitlement type society. A Christian doesn't live like that. A Christian says, I'm under this. I'm under an obligation. When I share the gospel with people, I'm not trying to take anything from them. It's not my desire to take anything from them. I'm not doing them a favor, although in a sense they are benefiting from it. But the biggest thing is I am a debtor to them. I owe them the truth. You ever, you ever never felt that? You know, I need to tell them. Maybe you're convicted about something in your life, and you say, I need to tell him. He needs to know the truth. I, 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 I think I owe him the truth. You ever said that to someone? I think I owe to tell you the truth. Paul is saying the same thing in a big, important way. Christians, we are under obligation by God, by his will and calling, as primarily a servant. You're obligated to share the gospel. Now, if you think for a moment, get a bullhorn, stand by the corner. Some people can do that very well. They're very, very good at it. In fact, uh, some people I know could do that. But you know, you're obligated to share the gospel, starting in your home. Not across the street, maybe, but across the dining room table. Maybe across the hall in your office. Maybe across the room. Maybe across the street. And if in God's grace, across the world. And Paul certainly prayed for that. I want to go across the world. And he's very, very good because he tells the Romans, when I get to Spain, I want to see you. He lets them know at the end that he wants to go to Rome and he wants to go to Spain. Very, very interesting how Paul laid it out. But he says, I'm under obligation. I want to give people what I have. I've been giving so much. Now, just, just, uh, just as we finish, what have you received from Jesus? Let's be specific, right? Salvation. Salvation. What else? Righteousness. Mercy. Grace. Love. Peace. About forgiveness. Forgiveness. Relationship. Grace, right? Merit of favor. Mercy, kindness, goodness, joy. Life. How about the Holy Spirit? Did you get that because you trusted Jesus, right? He gave you his Holy Spirit. Did you pay for any of this? You are the recipient of so much. And Paul said the same thing. God has given me everything free. His son, his joy, his spirit, his love, his forgiveness. The meek will inherit the earth. Not only what I have now, but what I'm going to get in eternity is going to be even unfathomable. I owe to the world to tell them this good news. I owe it. How could I tell people, how could I not tell people if, they, if this is free, if this is something that they could have in this? That's where we're going, and that's what we're missionaries, and that's why we need to pay this debt. How do we pay the debt? Your calling in the gospel as a servant. In Christ, I pray you find a way to do this. I said, there are evangelists, and they're wonderful evangelists. But we're all called to do the work of an evangelist. How you're to do this with your children, with your family, with your loved ones, even across the world. We're going to Mexico in a couple of weeks or so. We're going to be doing this too. We owe it to them. We owe it to the 
Mexico. We owe it to Canada. We owe it to our own country. We owe it to our own city and our own county and our own family. We are a debtor. And the quicker you pay it off, the better off you will be. How do you pay it off? Tell everybody. And that's what Paul is saying. I am so eager. I've been stopped at times as I've been hindered, but I'm so eager to come. I have this debt that I want to pay. It's our calling. Find the calling. Find what God wants you to do. Lay aside anything that hinders that and go for it. And in eternity, you won't regret it one second. If there's time at all. There's no time in eternity, but you will never regret it. It's your calling. Paul had his, and he's fulfilling it. Let's be imitators of him. Let's pray. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the calling of Paul and a reminder that he is the apostle that you sent to the Gentiles. And Lord, uh, if there was anybody that nobody would have picked, would have been Paul, how could he be an apostle to the Gentiles? And yet, Lord, he is the right one. He is the perfect one, not only because you chose him to do this, but because you sent them to be the proclaimer, proclamation of your son and to explain the faith to us in a very real and very practical and very clear way. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for this letter. Thank you for our calling. I pray, Lord, for our fellowship here that we would get on with our calling individually and as a church as well, as a fellowship together, that we would have a debt that we know that we need to pay. And that debt is to bring people to Christ, to bring them to the gospel. And Lord, help us to be eager to pray, eager to pay that debt, eager to go, even to the ends of the earth. We praise you, Lord, that your calling is from eternity. It's not our calling. We didn't sign up for it. It's something you did in us. Help us to change, Lord, the way we think and the way we view Christianity and our own faith and make it more biblical, more centered on your word, empowered by your Holy Spirit. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.